Hello, hello. Welcome to Sound Waves of Belonging with myself, host Anahit Dashgard. Today, I'm in conversation with Scott Fraser. Scott is a former commissioned military officer, once deployed as a United Nations peacekeeper. He's now president and CEO of one of the largest independent publishers in North America, Dundurn Press. Also one of a very small minority of Black publishers in the publishing industry at present, and as well the publisher of my next book, a collection of essays called Bones of Belonging, Finding Wholeness in a White World. You might wonder what the military and publishing have in common. We get to that. We also talk about why he offered to pick up my book without seeing it first, our common struggles with racial discrimination, why language and stories matter, and what's dangerous about publishing someone like Jordan Peterson. Listen in and enjoy the ride. So hi, Scott. Thank you for jumping on and making time on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Absolutely. Great. My pleasure. It's so gorgeous out. There's nothing better to do than, than talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is publishing and myself. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, hope, hopefully writing a book is getting there. And writing and books and all that other stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, for people listening, I have to just say that um, I approached you for two reasons. One is that I think you're one of the few Black publishers in North America, if not beyond that. And so that's significant. And uh, also, you are the publisher of my next book, Bones of Belonging. Indeed. Um, I, I will say in, in Canada, I'm very happy that there's a few uh, Black publishers coming up behind me um with uh with, with some smaller independent independent uh initiatives um and I, I would be remiss if i didn't shout out hush harbor uh which mm-hmm. is led by uh black women and uh uh griot's lounge which is uh, a nigerian uh, publisher originally who's relocated to canada and has continued to publish some really exciting african voices Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's actually really valuable to know and for listeners to know as well, that there are um, other publishers and more to come. So uh, I'm going to start this in a completely self-indulgent way, because <laughs> I like to talk about myself too. <laughs> Indeed. As authors and publishers, I think we kind of have to be like, you have to be shameless in your self-promotion, right? It, it certainly helps uh, that you and I, I mean, we've been connected, like you said on, on earlier on social media for a while now, while now, when we notice what each other is doing, but it really struck me when, so for people listening, I'll do a very quick um, nutshell here. Uh, my first book, a memoir came out a couple of years ago and I acquired an agent for the second book. And I found in that whole process that um there was a gap between what the agent was saying verbally and what was happening in practice. And I felt like there was this pattern of really having to, as you just said, advocate on behalf of the need for more diverse voices and stories. Um, what I was writing about, the fact that I'm just, I'm, I'm writing from a particular perspective that I know is needed because I don't see those, those books represented. And particularly as a, um, as a woman of color, just there's, I think, so much unexplored areas to, to write about um, as an immigrant, as somebody that's faced um, overt racism, more systemic in my adult life. 
And one of the things that struck me was, so I ended up firing my agent for the second book. I just thought I can do a better job myself, representing myself. And then I was talking to a few publishers and I ended up putting something on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And what struck me was your almost immediate response to what I put out there where you said, without even seeing the manuscript at this point, hey, I would be really interested in looking at your manuscript and publishing it. And I think that has to do with something around identity. And so I'm wondering what caught you in that? Like, why did you say, why was it such a favorable response? Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is, I'm excited to answer that. And that, and the real, the reason is because I suspected, and this is based on, you know, having followed, at least followed, you know, followed your, your social work, your social media kind of, you know, your commentary. And also knowing that you'd had um, some experience in the Canadian publishing world as a result of the first book, I immediately had you tabbed for someone who was going to say some of the things that perhaps uh, are hard for, for, harder for for some people to say. Okay, so you have your own thing going, you don't depend on your writing life for for your bread and butter. Uh, it's, It's sort of like a compliment to your to your broader career. Now imagine if you were a novelist who who you know 20 years old and and just is being told constantly that you're lucky to have a, a seat at the table. Uh so so be quiet about it, right? And and I just kind of assume I I thought I bet that you are someone who is going to have the ability to say some things that that uh have been whispered amongst people of color in the industry both writers and on the publishing side, these things that we whisper about to each other. Uh, and I, I felt like it was, you know, it was a good good opportunity for me to use my position in the industry to, uh, you know, just basically hand you a megaphone because I don't think that self-criticism is something that we do very well, um, both in Canada and in terms of Canadian publishing. Um, I think we have uh, a long way to go in terms of living up to our own ideals, uh, again, both nationally and within our publishing uh, sector. Yeah, I agree with you. I love that line. I just uh, wanted to hand you a megaphone. I hope that's what I've done in this book. (laughs) It's certainly very (laughs) honest and vulnerable. So I hope that it speaks to people. Um, I'm curious why then I'm probably this is part of your motivation for getting into publishing. So when did you get into publishing? Because you are now publisher of one of the largest independent publishers in, again, I think in North America. Well, certainly it wasn't with any any real in, sense of intent. I, I, I to, in order to tell to explain it, I guess I have to kind of go back uh, to to my younger uh, years, uh, my my twenties. I, I don't. I, People can't really see me on audio, but I'm I'm not in my twenties. <laughs> but when I was in my twenties, I was uh, a military officer, and oh. so I did that. Um, I did uh, not know that. Well, okay, so I'm sure there's lots of things that we can unpack there, because um, one of the frequently asked questions I get is, how the heck does someone go from being a, a you know, an army officer to a, a book publisher? Um, and, and it really didn't happen with any particular intent. Um, what, what it was, was, you know, I, I was coming back from a, a deployment with the United Nations and I was in my late twenties and I basically had a, I guess you'd call it a quarter life crisis. When I got back, I just like nothing. Uh, I went into a pretty steep mental health decline and really just kind of, you know, couldn't serve, you know, in, my, in, uh, in that capacity anymore. And I decided that, look, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stick around and, and uh, in this line of work that just doesn't feel like me anymore. And so 
I started casting about, I was quite lost, you know, like uh, my, my entire identity and formative years were spent in an, in an environment, in an institutional environment where that, that, that was, was actually quite beneficial to me in a lot of ways. So I didn't have any of the stress or anxiety of deciding what clothes to wear or uh, when, you know, when, when to show up or where, because a lot of it was just, you know, kind of hand, handed to you. And that kind of structure was beneficial to me, um, especially because I, I had, you know, a little bit of a chaotic uh, upbringing, a lot of, lot of moving and, and uh, family breakdown and, and uh, other, other issues. So the military became kind of a bedrock for me until it wasn't. And then my life collapsed. So that, you know, that was, uh, you know, they, uh, there's, a, there's a great biblical parable about the, the, the fool who builds his house upon the sand. And I th- kind of think I built my, my house on the sand, thinking huh. that it was a rock solid foundation. But the, the, the short answer is when I, when I sort of got out of the military, I looked around and I didn't really know what to do. I was applying for jobs in HR because I'd, I'd had some experience with uh, policy writing in the military and casualty administration in the military. And I had a reputation for being able, you know, punching above my weight in terms of being a policy type of, you know, basically a, a sitting, sit there at a desk and make the organization better with your words. Um, and I, so I was applying for jobs in like HR and stuff, but not getting so much as an interview. And, and I kind of realized that it was because, you know, <sighs> There's a lot of stereotypes about what kind of person is going to be in the military. Um, and I also didn't have a, a bachelor's degree at the time. So I, like basically no one wanted me. After, if I couldn't soldier, I didn't like I felt pretty useless. But my my older sister at the time was enrolled at the X University or Met- Metropolitan University's uh, publishing program. And I basically just did what felt safe to me my whole life, which is just follow my older sister around. Uh, she's two years older than me I, I basically spent my childhood just following her around and that, that that extended into following her into publishing oh that's awesome where is she now you know she she finished the program but she never actually worked in publishing and mm-hmm. part you know I think we could probably talk about that as uh, some of the reasons why because you know she is a far better editor than I am she is, in my opinion, uh, far more diligent and hardworking, and she just never got her foot in the door. Uh, and part of it is because, frankly, she has she has two children. She couldn't afford to to live off the the wages that are paid in Canadian publishing. That's one of the systemic issues that someone like my sister basically uh, was priced out of the industry before she even had a chance to get started. Yeah, there's definitely a huge. Um, financial uh, barrier to anyone that, well, many people that work in the industry for sure. How, how long have you been a publisher there at Dundurn? So I've been the publisher for three years. It's actually my second stint as an employee of the company. Uh, before becoming the, the, public, the president and publisher, I was uh, an acquisitions editor under the previous ownership. Uh, the company was sold three and a half years ago. And uh, the new owners actually brought me back to the company. I had left uh, for a period and they brought me back to uh, effect, you know, effectively to be their, their top manager and to run the company for them. So you've just named a big reason to not go into book publishing. And uh, you have <laughs> not only chosen to, to go there, but stay there. Why, why are you there? Um, and you haven't said anything yet about books or stories. So I'm going to push you on that. Yeah, no. So let's go there. Why am I, why do I stay? And it's like, I, I, you know, part, part of the reason is feels like a calling because of my previous career, I had an advantage over other entry-level people, right? I mean, uh, for a lot of entry-level people getting into publishing, it might take 10, 20 years to get even to the management 
level, let alone a top executive. Um, but I had that kind of like organizational and leadership experience. And I've, it's, the one thing I will say about why, one of the things that keeps me here is that being in the military teaches a person loyalty, uh, but loyalty in two directions. You have to be loyal to your, you know, your chain of command upwards, but you must also be loyal to the people that are, that you're in command of, uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a relationship that is going to, that you depend on, especially as a young officer. And so I've tried to apply those learnings to my leadership at Dundurn. And I, I find that like, is, even though it's, it's, it's certainly not the military, okay, it's publishing, no, there's no emergencies, <laughs> no one's going to die. And I actually find that quite relaxing because again, I, 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 I was, um, I worked a long, uh, way too long, I think, than was healthy in the casualty administration world. And so what I love about publishing is that it's just peaceful. Right. Like no one, no one dies because of publishing. And I, well, you know, look, unless some, some fascist comes in and decides to, uh, to shoot me or something, but uh, you know, barring that day to day, it's a genteel environment. I, I feel comfortable and safe here. And mm-hmm. I try to create the conditions that others who are working here can feel that same kind of mm-hmm. uh, comfort and safety. Well, can I run something past you? It sure. strikes me that both positions are serving our democracy in really key and vital ways, but very different, where, I mean, the military is obvious, keeping civilians, Canadian civilians safe, supposedly. Uh, maybe, maybe dubious. <laughs> maybe, <but. laughs> yeah, yeah, ideally. Um, and then publishing, which is, uh, you know, I think that on a, on a very um, often unnamed, but very real level, in order for democracy to be healthy, people living in the country need to see themselves reflected in the stories and story of the land. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons I started writing is that I, I feel like in this country, in many Western democracies, we still have a dominant mythology of who we are as a people that's very white mm-hmm. and that is very colonial and that, you know, and, and we still have to unpack and make space for other stories to come in. And so it strikes me that if you've been in publishing, you know, president and publisher there for three years, you're part of this Canadian renaissance that's happening or this Western renaissance that's happening where countries are starting to tell a different story. It's very exciting. How do you see that? I think it's a very exciting time in Canadian publishing because of the conversations that are happening amongst Canadians. And some of these conversations can get ugly, right? I mean, we, we, we had the, the events in Ottawa, we have the events in Buffalo, which, you know, I know is in the States, but it's, you know, it's, it, look, that's two hours away. 100%. Uh, and, and so as a, as a black man going about my business, uh, it puts you off for the day, right? Um, but, but it reminds me that my job, regardless of, of anything, any other factor, my job is political. The decision about what to publish is political. And I have a very powerful position in the industry that I have to, I, I must be aware of. It has to in, impact the decisions that we make at the editorial board. Uh, now, look, Dundurn Press is not a revolutionary organization. We're, we're, we're a for-profit, you know, capitalist organization. We're not, we're not revolutionaries here. But I do think that when you talk about the, the civics of it, the civics of the act of publishing and, and curating stories for a, a broad audience is one that I, I have to bring my, uh, my background with me when I'm making those decisions because the stakes are simply too high. 
so there there are as much as we're, we maintain mm-hmm. editorially a big tent where we, we don't have any mm-hmm. particular political affiliation or leaning we we publish with we publish with a bit of a chip on our shoulder and we publish with the idea that we have an opportunity to tap in through the books that we're picking through the authors that we're choosing to work with uh, mm-hmm. how we can positively or constructively even, not necessarily mm-hmm. positive, but just constructively contribute to uh, some of these national conversations that are that are mm-hmm. um, really overdue. And, you know, I think one um, we talk about stories, I, I can't remember um, where, it came, where it came up. I think maybe saw it on CBC today, but there was uh, an, an Indigenous, uh, a Cree uh, artist who was talking about the, the, the dominance of the group of seven in terms of Canadian artistic, you know, myth-making and nation-making. And, and so, of course, his perspective involved a, you know, the, the, a kind of indigenization of that identity. You know, so I remember as a kid being shown group of seven paintings and, and you know, con- when, I, when I thought about it today, as I was reading that article, I contrasted that to the kind of built environment that I lived in uh, as a kid. And it was like, you know, grim, post-war suburbs uh and then when i moved to oshawa it's like deindustrialized rust belt urban decay mm-hmm. it was it couldn't be further from these images and so so when mm-hmm. we have these kind of national myths it's like for whom mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. for the for the people who have the luxury to take off and go camping for a month and and mm-hmm. whatever you know it's a, that wasn't my childhood that wasn't our experience mm-hmm. our experience was like uh suburban mediocrity a kind of mm-hmm. like a, a, an incredibly atomized environment and at the same time an incredibly conformist environment mm-hmm. um, and so I really didn't start to see myself reflected in stories until I started having more control over the stories that were coming out so I, I also tried mm-hmm. to publish for the the kid who who's out there who wants to see books and wants want, loves books mm-hmm. I was a voracious reader uh, mm-hmm. but I was just being given the wrong kinds of materials you know yeah, 100%. And I think there's a there's a mental health as well as other costs when you don't see yourself reflected. Like I grew up experiencing racism and ostracization because we moved, we immigrated. And um, in the context I grew up in, I was as dark as it got. Um, mm. And there was a lot of social shunning and all that stuff that happened. Um, but I could not make meaning of that or name it because in the context I was in, you know, I, I had to pretend to assimilate and be as white as I could be to just mm-hmm. survive. And so there was this underlying feeling of like, I'm the problem. I'm just not working hard enough. I have to, you know, shave off parts of my personality and yeah. the way I look physically in order to, and and it wasn't until I started reading and, you know, when I moved into young adulthood, I started to, you know, um, gradually, and it took many years because, you know, I'm in my late forties now, I'll come out and say that. Um, just read, you know, over the last 10 years, have I started to really, you know, it was Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. That was a pivotal book. Ceremony by Leslie Marmon, Indigenous story about stories and the power of seeing ourselves in the story. So I started to slowly realize that I wasn't the problem, but the society and the systems that I was part of that told just one version of who you had to be. Like middle-class, like you're saying, white, Christian, you know, all of these things. But yeah, like I, and I just feel like I would have saved myself a hell of a lot of suffering and shame <laughs> and mental health crises yeah. 
if I had just been able to access some of that shit earlier. Yeah, not yeah, shit. Exactly. Those stories, the those stories, powerful yeah. stories earlier. No, and and for me it was uh, other than so I was a little bit lucky because my father was a teacher, uh, and and so oh, wow. he was able to smuggle some black resources into, it. and so we grew up with a very strong. My sisters and I grew up with a very very strong sense of our Jamaican and African identities, and. Mm. That that was without that I, I don't know where we would have ended up and I went to the uh, tennis schools uh, in the Durham District School Board, oh, uh, which goodness. is pro- yeah. possibly one of the biggest pits of despair in the province. In any event, I don't I wasn't assigned any material by or about black people until high school, and that that was an economics teacher who who I think he was just mailing it in for the day and put on uh, cry cry the beloved country. Uh, and so it was the first time that I kind of was presented with a figure who was telling me that black is beautiful. Uh, and this is in the 1990s. And, and despite my father's efforts, uh, we, we uh, my sisters and I, I think often struggled with the idea of accepting ourselves as beautiful, uh, be it because people, the kids were teasing us about our hair or our complexion or you know, whatever, whatever it was. Um, but, but that was kind of the environment. And I think, you know, as a publisher, I, I, the, the one thing that I'm most excited about is that the, the, the quality of the stories uh, coming out of Canadian presses and not just Dunder. And I, I'm happy, you know, the Dunder is part of, part of what, you know, you call the Renaissance, but we're not, we're not the first. Mm-hmm. And kudos to you. Cause you've published some really great books in the last year or two years that have gotten attention that, um, you know, powerful narratives that that I would like to think are also a little bit about who you are and the role you're in. Well, I, I on that front, I would have to call uh, attention to The Son of the House by Chiluchi uh, yes. Onyobia, because when she wrote that, when she was writing that that book, she was actually, she was living in Canada. She was trying to get published in Canada. Uh, and she she fit all the, you know, the, all, the, all the criteria. She was a, a resident permanent resident and uh she was completely driven by wanting to write books in uh, in canada and she was just completely like, roundly rejected by everyone who who saw her manuscript now she ended up going i think there was just it was just too african for canadian editors and so what what i was doing at the time was like okay we know we have some really exciting um more diverse authors in the pipeline but between now and then we can't just keep we can't have a season where we're just publishing white authors. And so I, I went shopping internationally uh, and I reached out to a colleague who, who represents, uh, her clients are mainly in, in, um, in Africa. She's based in South Africa herself. And I, I told her I, was, I, I want someone who is brilliant and has even a tenuous connection to Canada. I just want someone African who has a connection to Canada and has, has top tier talent, top shelf talent. And she recommended Chiluchi to me. I read the manuscript. It was one of those ones where, where as, a, as an editor, you just know, like you sit down and within like oh, 10 pages, you know, okay, I'm going to do this. Now let me finish it. Right. As I close the door, do not disturb. I'm reading this amazing manuscript. And we just bought, we brought it in, we imported it. And, and the proof is in the pudding because it was our first ever uh, Giller short, Giller shortlist, Giller anything, Giller, Giller prize, uh, longlist, shortlist, anything. Uh, so that was a major achievement for the press. And it kind of, I think it kind of signaled 
to the publishing community that we're a press that we're gonna we're gonna take risks. We're going mm-hmm. to look for things that are a little, not just a little bit different, a lot different. Um, mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of Canadian publishers publishing books that are set in Africa, and that don't have some kind of white character, you know, as the as the reason to be in Africa, yeah. right? Like, yeah. and 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 so this is this is actually a book where every single character that appears in the pages is is an, a black Nigerian. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super cool. Yeah, well, exactly what we're talking about, changing the story of what it means to be Canadian. So on that note, I'm, I'm curious um, if you're comfortable answering this. What's your background? Did you yeah. move, immigrate to Canada? From- no, I was born here. My, mm. my father was born in Jamaica and he was migrated here as a boy. So the family, family, it's my grand, my grandparents. Um, my grandfather left uh, Jamaica to get a, uh, to pursue higher education. So he moved from Kingston, Jamaica to Kingston, Ontario, and um, he was living in Kingston. Uh, and because it, it was such a tough time for him, the black man in the fifties in Kingston. I mean, it's hard. Ask Desmond Cole. It's hard enough in the in the two thousands. Oh my 2000s, God. You know? I, I, I spent my first year at University at Queens, and even then, it was uh, it was uh, you know, there's a reason I left after a year. Let's just say. <laughs> right. I mean, no offense to anyone in Kingston, but it, you know, it's uh, but you know, anyway. But he, moved, he he was in Kingston. Things were so tough for him that he was afraid he wasn't going to make it through school, and that would have been a disaster. So he sent for his wife to help him get through this, to make sure that he was eating and, you know, had the the comforts of having some of his family with him. But the result was that they left their two eldest, their two children at the time. They didn't have any others. The, my father and his older brother uh, were left behind. Uh, to be raised by their their grandmother and that's pretty common for mm-hmm. jamaicans even to this day where uh, so-called temporary foreign workers uh um have to make that decision to leave their their mm-hmm. families and children behind in order to to earn a living his intent was never to stay here his intent was to get his law degree and return to jamaica but unfortunately for that plan uh my grandmother was pregnant with uh, her, her third child uh, my uncle was born there in Kingston, uh, soon to be followed by my aunt. And at that that point, they decided to reunite the family. So the the older uh, the older boys, my father and his older brother Hugh, were were brought. That's what I mean by migrate. They they didn't know, even know who their parents were when they got here. They were strangers, right? So imagine mm-hmm. that the the what it would be like to be wrenched out of the only home that you've known as a five or six year old brought to a strange place uh, and told that, Hey, you're living with these people who you don't even remember. Like it's very sad. It's very sad. And I, I think mm-hmm. um, if I, if I were to have a frank conversation with my dad and I, I've, we've had this conversation is that it, uh, that separation and that kind of trauma mm-hmm. had an impact on our family. Uh, the, the difficulty that my father had bonding with his mother uh, had an, an unbelievable, like, an obvious mm-hmm. impact on on his children and uh, our relationships with our partners. So we're talking, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it, but they did it to they did it on the grounds that they thought Canada was a better bet. Of mm-hmm. Once once the 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 mm-hmm. first Canadian born child was arrived, mm-hmm. um, they they figured it would be profoundly unfair to deny this child Canadian citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they just stayed and kind of got stranded, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, you know, they did okay. Right. Like they, they, given the circumstances, they ended up doing really well. Yeah. I really hear both strands of what an incredible um, sacrifice it's paid off, but also the cost of and relationships and mental health and the, the struggle that comes with that too. 
you know, it's, um, although very different, um, one of the things that I've come to grips with in the writing process is the, because we were, it wasn't just immigration, it was exile because of the revolution in Iran mm-hmm. that happened in 1979. And so overnight, there was this leaving behind of extended family, community, culture, language, everything. And we didn't have access to that when we moved, uh, both because we weren't part of a Persian um, exile community, really, but also my father's choice, like many immigrants of the time, like not wanting us to continue speaking Farsi at home and, mm-hmm. you know, want, you know, pushing assimilation as the way to sort of get a leg up. But it's take it again has taken many years to realize the cost of that and how and did your family just, did you did you lose your ability to speak those languages could you yeah, speak, yeah, yeah yeah and that and that's a that's like that's a that's a serious loss right i mean i i yeah. can't speak jamaican yeah uh, it's and, and it's because it was discouraged right it was just yeah. like my grandfather did everything he could to hide his accent yeah 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 the the, the language is a loss because it's obviously a key connection to culture mm-hmm. but but the loss of um when you said that line about it impacted my relationship with my father and then paying it forward, my own relationship with my partner myself and that ability to bond. Well, you know, for me, I've relationship is the area I struggle. It's not in work. It's not in writing. I know I can do anything I put my mind to, but in personal relationship, it's really hard. And I think that that core loss in early childhood years of just losing everything that I had defined myself by has has cast a shadow over my life. And yes, I've, I've pulled myself out and I continue to do the work and I've made meaning in other ways. And I've, you know, done the, continue to do that healing process, but whew, I don't. It's intense. And I, you know, you said the, fra- the phrase do, do the work, you know, you hear that a lot, especially in social justice circles. And, you know, I, I think it's an important phrase because when I, when I think back to sort of the guy that I was, even when I started my career in publishing, it's been an evolution. And even in the last three years of being a, a senior manager, it's like uh, reminding myself every day because I, I can be a bit of a dominant for, again, like you relationships. I, I'm a great networker. I think people like me, but when it comes to like, I, I can be a really hard person to work around and to, to work for and to be in a relationship with. Are you a perfectionist by, um, by chance? I, you know, I, I no. You know, my, my partner thinks that I, I have some kind of uh, undiagnosed form of neurodiversity. Uh, that, like ADHD that, or something. Yeah, ADHD. Yes. Or well, so I just so, found that out a year ago, actually, which <laughs> I think is actually tied to the very thing we're talking about. Well, well and, and so I've had to, I've, I've really kind of tried to become more deliberate and I, I'm learning every day to unpack some of the tendencies that I have. Uh especially the tendency towards frustration and 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 even just hostility sometimes where it's like wow that's like really not helpful uh but i know where it comes from i know it comes from the the these sort of foundational experiences even with the my encounters with the educational system where on the one hand i had teachers who would just tell me straight up that you're going nowhere you're you're going to be a failure Uh, and and hearing that message from educators and then having the, the kind of reinforced on, on at home where I had uh, both of my parents and eventually were teach. My mom eventually went and certified and became a teacher. But my, my dad uh, had this ethos that if you do fail or if you don't, not, never mind if you fail, if you don't 
excel, then then you know the, the attitude is like, yeah, you, you are a failure, right? Education you're, is you're the worthless, way that, right? You're right, worthless because right. yeah, education yeah. is the way this family yeah. dragged itself out of poverty, and you better yeah. not, you know, be backsliding, young man. Uh, so so um, I think I kind of learned that that harshness uh, from a pretty early age, and mm-hmm. um, I certainly had it in the military where I, I was capable of of losing my temper in an environment where it wasn't necessarily reined in either. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a journey. It's been work to sort of, uh, uh, be, even just to admit to myself that I'm not perfect. It's really tough, right? It's like, I mean, it's one of the hardest things to do is to critique oneself, but, um, I will say that, that the military, that it's one of the, one of the, um, the rules of leadership or the principles of leadership is that you have to do that work. Uh, and, and it's supposed, you know, on paper, at least it's what differentiates a good officer from a bad officer is that, that, that you're, you're actually actively looking for your own weaknesses. Now it's easier said uh-huh. than done, but yeah. like you said, yeah. it's like work. Then I think it, it's, it's work, uh, that is made a lot easier with stories, with examples, with, yeah. uh, the fact that, you know, if I, I know that there's going to be someone out there who's going to read your book and they're going to say, well, if she can do it, so can I. Yeah. Yeah. Stories in a way give a map to that, what the inner work can look like Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, you're penetrating beneath the surface of what, you know, what we see in each other on a day-to-day basis. Stories allow more depth and yeah, provide a map of sorts. Any, Any memoir. I think this is something that we could probably talk about because of the nature of memory itself memoir yeah. is always going to straddle that line between fact and fiction yeah they're, they're they're sort of substantively true but anything that depends on on the the flawed machine that is our memory yeah. is bound to ha- and 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 i think there's there's interesting value in that and as a memoirist you must have you must have an opportunity to kind of go back and relive some of those scenes like there there was a particular mm. particularly uh memorable scene from the sample chapters that i read of yours where you're on tour uh promoting your your first book and you've been injured what mm. I, I like what was that like kind of reopening that like you must have almost felt the pain from the injury again as you were remembering it like isn't that is, is there something to be said about reopening those and re, re-remembering them uh with some distance yeah i mean i mean you're talking about a couple of things. One is, is, is uh, when you write personal experience, what does it feel like to go back and revisit it? And it feels different depending on the time of life and what you're going through in the moment. But the other part about the untrustworthy nature of memory itself. But the interesting thing is like, there's a code, like you can't rely fully on how you remember something. But for me, there's, as you write and describe something, there is an underlying, does this feel I have to get as close as possible to what felt most true in mm. that experience. And sometimes that means um, embellishing slightly or, or adding a little bit more, a couple drops of this, because I can't describe the five incidents that happened that illustrate, <laughs> but I have to kind of deepen this one experience that's going to illustrate that. But everything has to be in service of telling it as, as truthfully as I can to what, um, to what it felt like at the time, to what it meant for me at the time, um, to how it played out at that time. Yeah. And so I, you know, it's a funny thing, like it's not reliable, but there's a, there's a code of honor. I feel like in writing personal experience, maybe it's that, more an act of faith. Like you're faithful to the story that as, as you remember it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You're serving the truest story that wants to emerge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's interesting. But I was like, I mean, I, now I, now all of a sudden I'm interviewing you, right? <laughs> this, is, this is one of my techniques when, when I feel like I'm on the hot seat. Like, okay, I, I can turn the tables here. <laughs> it didn't escape me. Well, you know, I mean, being where you are, you have, you have many paths in front of you. And so maybe I'll finish on that note, talking about paths. Where do you see the future of publishing in, uh, not just in Canada, but in, let's say in North America, because I feel like Canada, you you know, our books, our stories cross borders regularly at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I you know, I, I think um, we're in for very turbulent times. Paradoxically, for once, it's not because of the economics of the of the industry specifically, as the economics of the entire society. Uh, uh, I mean, I, since 2008, we've been on this kind of endless austerity regime that has kind of de-energized a lot of people. And it's, I think it's the, one of the root causes of the crystallizations of the political divisions in this country, the resurgence of, of white supremacy in particular. I think it's important to actually call that out for what it is. I think it's going to make for a very rocky environment in which to publish books in North America. And perhaps uh, this will be experienced more intensely in the United States. Um, the level of censorship is something that I think as, as lovers of stories, we need to be very concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, the level of violence, I think, makes for a, lo- a, a difficult environment in which to publish as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And on top of that, you have the economics of an industry that are, have always been kind of marginal, right? Like even in the mm-hmm. best of times, the so-called golden age of publishing in North America, uh, companies were, were happy to see a 4 or 5% return on investment. Uh, now, I would love to see those kinds of numbers at Dundurn again with, with runaway inflation and with the supply chain issues that affect everything from the glue that we use to bind our books to paper, to the, to the ink, uh, it's getting more and more challenging. So where is this going to end, end up? I think publishers need, especially Canadian independent publishers, and I, I'm going to speak about that uh, as opposed to trying to, I don't really care what happens to Penguin Random House, they'll be fine, right? Like, I, it, it doesn't matter, they'll, they'll be fine. Or HarperCollins or Simon & Schuster, like yeah. their, their shareholders are fine. Yeah. Um, what I what I do uh, believe for for the smaller presses for the independent presses is that we need to we need to have some lines that we're not willing to cross. Um, mine is I, I won't publish a fascist or someone who's close enough that I can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. um, the multinational publishers don't have that same commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. I think that is let's, let's just call out Jordan Peterson here. That as sure. an example, yeah. Sure. Well, Jordan yeah. Peterson is interesting because we posted an ad looking for a black graphic designer because mm-hmm. we wanted someone we wanted that. someone to work with um, a, a reissue of the Polished Hoe by Austin Clark. Mm. Uh, so we thought it'd be kind of cool if we could have someone in particular, if we could find an Afro-Caribbean person who who mm-hmm. had a kind of maybe a more of a, a connection to the material. Mm-hmm. Well, Jordan Peterson took it as an opportunity to just have one of his Twitter meltdowns. It's the Lost mm-hmm. Boys. And and these guys were just bombarding our, our social media feeds mm-hmm. with with you know pictures of monkeys and and just like all kinds of anti-black racism. That that you know it's it's look I, I've I, I guarantee you I've seen and heard it worse than anything those guys can can conjure up at this point but it it 
again, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like some of these people I know from my, my own experience, some of these people mean to hurt me uh, and, and will do so if, if they think mm-hmm. they have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess like, you know, for Canadian publishers who, who aren't going to be competitive, like you got, like, you got to have some standards. You got to have some, be aware of like the, not, not for self-censorship. I don't agree with self-censorship in publishing. We publish all kinds of things that like I, that certainly are controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's that line where it's like, you have to be willing to live with the, if you want to publish Jordan Peterson, given his track record, you need to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I will be okay with it. When one of his followers walks into the Dunder and press office and blows my head up, like, you know, puts a bullet yeah. in my head. Yeah, if you're, right. if you're not okay with that, then don't publish mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a difference between censorship and uh, choosing according to values, value system, knowing what those values are and choosing according to value system. Well, see, and I know what the values that companies like Penguin Random House are, despite what it says on the website, their values are to maximize profit at, at, expensive yeah. it doesn't matter if it's yeah. at the expense of the workers or at the expense of black people or women mm-hmm. or what, what have you i mean um and that, and that, that you know it's, it's, this is the political economy we mm-hmm. live in but it doesn't make yeah. it any easier to kind of um you know see those people at parties and know that they're happy to to platform mm-hmm. someone who's who's like that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know, but the struggle continues one, one book at a time, one, one workshop at a time, one person at a time, uh, you know, that, that you gotta, uh, there's no alternative, right? You just got to keep trying to go forward. Yeah. hundred percent. Some positive positivity and some great stories. Amen to that. Yeah. That is, uh, I just, I'm taking in the story and just inspired by the many ways in which you are protecting, uh, a more diverse and inclusive future for all of us. It's been really awesome. Well, I've, I've enjoyed this. This is great. Thanks so much for joining today. Please feel free to share this episode. And you can also visit my website, Anahi Dashgard, A-N-N-A-H-I-D-D-A-S-H-T-G-A-R-D.com where you can order my latest book, Bones of Belonging, where I dive deeper into themes we discussed here today. Be well, and look forward to you joining next time. Mm -hmm.